Good evening, and welcome to the September 2019 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia, and I am particularly excited tonight to be celebrating my 10th anniversary here at KRCB Radio. It has been one heck of a year of anniversaries, and if you listened just last week, you heard the entire Outbeat Radio team here as we celebrated our 25th anniversary right here on KRCB. So we're going to keep the celebration going tonight with two amazing guests from the documentary 5B. This is a film we've been talking about on Outbeat News that premiered on August 27th on just about every streaming service. The documentary tells the story of Ward 5B at San Francisco General Hospital during the first 15 years of the AIDS crisis. The doctors, nurses, and staff on 5B initiated a level of care unmatched and unheard of during the early years of the crisis, and to call them heroes would be a complete understatement. Guy Vandenberg was a nurse on 5B, and his husband, Steve Williams, ended up being a patient. They're both here with us tonight to share their stories and to talk about this remarkable film. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. Greg Moralia with your Alpi Radio News for the week of September 22, 2019. In the state of Arizona, the Brush and Nib studio owners have won a major LGBTQ discrimination case, despite never being accused of discriminating against anyone. Instead, the business preemptively sued for the right to refuse to print wedding invitations for gay and lesbian couples in an attempt to nullify the city of Phoenix's non-discrimination law. The company was represented by the anti-LGBTQ hate group Alliance Defending Freedom. The group serves as the legal arm of the religious right activist movement, and conveniently enough, they wrote the company's operating agreement shortly before filing the lawsuit on their behalf. In 2016, Brush and Nib sued Phoenix, arguing that the city's ban on discrimination violated the company's freedom of speech. Among other services, the newly formed store wanted to print wedding invitations, but only for straight couples. Co-owners Joanna Duca and Brianna Kosky said that they were, quote, devout Christians who wanted to overturn the civil rights law before any complaints could be filed against them. The Arizona State Supreme Court, dominated by social conservatives appointed by a far-right Republican governor, wrote in their decision that, quote, the rights of free speech and free exercise so precious to this nation since its founding are not limited to the soft murmurings behind the doors of a person's home or church or private conversations with like-minded friends and family. And then they go on to write, quote, these guarantees protect the right of every American to express their beliefs in public. This includes the right to create and sell words, paintings, and art that express a person's sincere religious beliefs, end quote. They wrote, the city of Phoenix cannot apply its human relations ordinance to force Joanna Duca and Brianna Kosky, owners of Brush and Nib Studios, to create custom wedding invitations celebrating same-sex wedding ceremonies in violation of their sincerely held religious beliefs, end quote. And here locally, many of you know Jim Foster and the amazing work he's done in our community. He was recently diagnosed with Julianne Baer syndrome, a debilitating immune disease that has taken away many of Jim's physical abilities. Jim has a long recovery period ahead and needs our support. In 1990, Jim Foster and Beverly Laird co-founded Positive Images, an organization that provides emotional support and mentorship for LGBTQI youth in our community. Jim also dedicated 20-plus years to running the peer counseling program at Santa Rosa High School. 
Jim has worked in the Peace Corps and has also traveled to Africa to volunteer his services. A fundraising event has been set up and planned to help Jim with his living expenses during his recovery. It'll take place this coming Saturday, September 28th from 1 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. at Santa Rosa High School. There'll be food and an exciting program celebrating Jim and his work. The community is invited to attend. And don't forget, this year's Outwatch Film Festival happens October 4th through the 7th. You can buy tickets now at outwatchfilmfest.org. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. In the early days of the AIDS crisis, the gay community in San Francisco was hit extra hard and turned to healthcare institutions like San Francisco General Hospital for help. This is the story of Ward 5B. Nearly 3,000 cases of AIDS have already hit this city. Half those people have died. The AIDS epidemic was raging. They wanted to isolate us and quarantine us on an island. Could this be a disease spread through the air? We were expected to wear what we called spacesuits, and some would refuse to give care. It made me angry. We have to do something. At San Francisco General Hospital, the staff is gearing up for the opening of a special wing to treat AIDS victims. It was built by the nurses there. We were gay, we were straight, we were young, we were old. And, of course, that was a time when nobody even knew how it was uh, spread. The danger was very real. AIDS is 100% fatal. We ought to be focusing on what we do to prevent all of us from getting the disease and dying. You have to get out of the mode that you're here for curing people and really get into the mode that you're here to care for people. People were like, well, you're probably going to get AIDS and you're probably going to die. I might have some anxiety about this, but I'm more pissed off and angry than I am scared. They made the rules as they went along. We decided that if we can't save these folks, we're going to touch them. This was a tangible thing you could do. Wash them, put moisturizer on them. You were allowed to love your patients. So much in life is not what you say or what you do. It's how you make people feel. It's broad change for how hospitals work. People came to our unit from worldwide to find out what we were doing, how or why. We weren't afraid. You don't have to have a hazmat suit every time you're around an AIDS person. You don't have to burn their bed because they died. The nurses were the real heroes. They stood up when nobody else would, and they were willing to take those risks. Two of the men featured in this documentary are Guy Vandenberg, a nurse who was drawn to San Francisco by the AIDS crisis, and his husband, Steve Williams, who ended up as a patient in 5B. Well, thankfully, both survived the epidemic, and they're here with us tonight to share this amazing film. Guy and Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It is such an honor to talk with you, and this is just an amazing film, as we've been talking about on the air here for this last month. But I'd like to get a little bit of background on you uh, both and talk a little bit about what you remember before the film begins and the story unfolds. What brought you? How did you come to San Francisco? Because you didn't grow up here, right? No, I grew up in New York City, and I grew up in the Netherlands. Yeah, so what drew you to San Francisco? Uh, probably the climate and weather. It's, you know, no extremes. And I had... Um... 
I had been living on the East Coast, and uh, I actually came to San Francisco specifically in order to learn more about HIV. On the East Coast, some of my friends had had died, um, and uh, I was invited by somebody who worked at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, a physician I knew from the Netherlands who worked at uh, Ward 86. Got it. There was a lot of, of course, being in New York, there was a lot of gay life there, but I knew it drew a lot of people to the Bay Area in the 70s before the crisis began was this notion that San Francisco was a place where gay men could be out and free and there was just a, 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 the opportunity to have a new life there. Had either of you heard about that being the case in San Francisco? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was known as, as the gay capital of the United States. So, yeah, of course I heard, yes. Yeah. I, I had heard of it, too. I, I had lived in one of the other gay capitals of uh, the world in Amsterdam, um, but I definitely heard about San Francisco and, and, of course, the summer of love and things that happened after that. Right. I was still in high school at the time and and not out, but I certainly remember hearing about you know this new world of sorts. Um, but it was always too afraid to go there. So how did you, how did you two meet coming from Amsterdam and New York? What brought you together? Well, we, we used to frequent a, a local bar in the Castro called the Pendulum. Ah. And then uh, we had mutual friends. And then one day, one night, a uh, guy actually came into the bar and there was nobody else there but me and him that were in our group. So... He asked me if I wanted to go to a party, and I said, sure. I, it took a lot of uh, my um, – it was very very stressful. <laughs> it was uh, – I, I was usually more the type that waited for somebody else to ask me out. But I uh, was invited for a party. It was Friday the 13th, <laughs> 1991. <laughs> and we had a pre-Christmas party that was hosted by one of the volunteers at the hospice where I worked, around the corner from the bar. And uh, I didn't really feel like going, but I thought if that if that really handsome guy is in the bar at the pendulum, I will ask him if he wants to come with. And if he if he does, then I'll go to the party. Otherwise, I'll just go home. <laughs> it was a roll of the dice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was way back before Grinder and all of the apps we have oh, that yeah. make it so seemingly yes. easy to find people. <laughs> a real authentic meeting. Now this was this was 1991. You mentioned so this is this is years after the yeah. crisis was underway. Yeah, I, I'd yeah. like to go back though before to 1981. I remember where I was when I first heard about this strange, deathly. Uh, virus didn't know what it was virus, but this this thing that was killing gay men. I was just graduating from high school, just beginning to sort of come out and you know explore, and it was terrifying. Do you guys remember where you first heard about this? I think on the news uh, in New York City is where I heard about mm-hmm. it first. And what did you think? How did it strike you? I was I was terrified. I was really t- – I mean because people were, were dropping like flies. Um, mm. I remember because I was working um, for Pan Am at the time. So I'd come out here and I remember walking down the street and you would see people with uh, KS lesions on their face. And you knew that they were going to die and it was incredibly frightening. 
Wow. Yeah, I remember seeing um, posters up uh, in places, you know, and, and again, I was I was just beginning to sort of figure things out. I was barely 18, and, and I'll never forget actually going into the very, very first bathhouse that I ever even thought about going into, and there was mm-hmm. a big poster right in the lobby, and it prevented me from going any further. I mean, I literally ran out of the place because I was yeah, so, yeah. so afraid. Right. Um, Guy, I'm interested. What was it like in Amsterdam? Had word traveled as quickly there as it had in the United States at the time? Um, well, yeah. It. I remember. I was in college, but I was I was in college in a rural area of the Netherlands, and uh, I I read in the newspaper. I saw on the news, and at first it was this thing that was happening in the United States. And then it was this thing that happened in the big cities like Rotterdam and Amsterdam, and, and I thought, no, 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 this, this, that can't be. You know, this if if it's happening there, then it's happening everywhere, right? It's right. not this this kind of thing is not this is not a local thing that can't be a local thing. Um, so I I, um, I would go to Amsterdam, and I knew people in Amsterdam who uh, were sick and and died, but it was it. I didn't really get personally more closely involved until I came to the States. Got it. And what drew you into getting involved in healthcare? And um, I, growing up, I had wanted to be a vet, okay. <laughs> but I, I didn't have the right prereqs. It was also nearly impossible to get into that, um, uh, in, into that university. And, um, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, so I, be, I became actually, uh, I studied organic farming and social work, a very odd combination. And uh, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, I just knew that I loved animals and I loved human beings, so that's what I studied. And then there was a job on the East Coast uh, in an intentional community for people with mental illness, um, developmental delay, and then later refugees. Uh, on a farm. So I was a dairy mm-hmm. farmer um, and kind of social and house parent, uh, social worker. And then while I was there, I had friends in Philly, Philadelphia and uh, in New York City who were getting sick. And um, right around that time, there was a Dutch physician who worked at General Hospital who gave a lecture in New York about HIV and I know this guy, so I went up to him afterwards and I asked some questions and said, but what, what are you guys doing there? But because in New York, you only had gay men's health crisis just starting, I think. Right. And there was, uh, you know, a lot of the people I knew and worked with were not gay men, but were injection drug users. And they didn't really, there wasn't really much there for them at the time. We were, we were trying to start a needle exchange, I remember. And, and then, so my friend Robert said, uh, well, we have this San Francisco model of care with Shanti, Project Open Hand, you know, it was sort of um, holistic care that surrounded the person. There, there was no cure, obviously. There, oh, was right. no, there, was, there was not much there, but there was a good, good palliative care. Um, and he invited uh, me and my, my, my ex um, to come and check it out in San Francisco, and once I got here, I immediately knew that not only did I want to stay in San Francisco, but I wanted to learn more about HIV. And I was thinking of going to medical school. I took my pre-meds 
Um, I worked at the hospice as a, as a hospice attendant. And, um, and then I met a nurse who changed my life. I thought, I'm not going to go to medical school. I'm going to go to nursing school. Hmm. What, what about meeting that person caused you to change? She is a phenomenal nurse. She, she just retired recently. Um, but she would, uh, you know, I, I would be with the patient in their home and, uh, you know, do what I had learned to do, like turn them into bed or, or uh, clean them up uh, if they'd sold themselves and help them eat. Um, but the family would be stressed out. The patient might be in pain and she would come in and within five minutes, you know, the whole, just her, the way she was with people, it, um, it, it really, the whole situation would change mm. and people would feel calm and peaceful. And, um, it was, it was impressive. Um, she's in, she's in a, you, you, you can find on YouTube, uh, Life and Death at the Ambassador Hotel. She's in it. Her name's Val Robb. She's phenomenal. And there were, there were many nurses like that. Uh, a lot of them uh, lesbians, not all of them, um, but just people who really stepped into this uh, work um, and brought something amazing. Yeah. It, it just sounds like you had inspiration around this all around you. Everything was leading you to do this work. It was right. It was. It was just right in front of me, and it was. It was around me, and you just. You, you can't run away. You. 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 Um, you do what you need to do. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for people like you. So let's pick up where the story in Five B begins, and tell us a little bit about how San Francisco General first responded to the crisis. I mean, San Francisco was clearly one of the epicenters and San Francisco general, I always remember reading about was right up front and right in it from the very beginning. Give us a little bit of a sense of what the hospital did that was unique from the start. Well, San Francisco general is an amazing hospital. Um, it's the County hospital. It's a safety net hospital and it is a teaching hospital. So it has this close affiliation with UCSF, um, which has phenomenal, uh, you know, resources, uh, obviously, but also uh, phenomenal expertise in infectious disease, oncology. But uh, the university as such, uh, up on Parnassus, they didn't necessarily want all of these sick folks who were injection drug users or, you know, gay men or, you know, just it wasn't quite their thing. So I think the university was happy that a clinic could happen at general and uh, and the administrators of course had all kinds of anxiety about this mm -hmm. but it was clear that something had to be done and um and there were people willing to do it you know at the outpatient clinic it was uh, it was mostly initially uh, the physicians and then rapidly joined by a bunch of nurses and in the inpatient side it was uh, nurses um, who realized that some of their colleagues were quite uncomfortable and had a lot of fear and anxiety, and, and that this was, uh, as David Denmark, one of the nurses, puts it in the in the film, this was a horror show uh, waiting to happen. These numbers were only going to go up, and people were going to just keep dying. So something had to be done. And so when nurses were willing to 
do this, the administrators were um, got over their anxiety and and let it happen. Um, of course, also knowing that if things did go wrong, <laughs> Cliff, the, the 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 first manager, would be the the fall guy. Right. And I don't want to give too much of the film away because there there are some dramatic moments in in it that are worth experiencing without any hints ahead of time. But there were some really contemporary things that happened in terms of the type of care. And, and of course, at this point, as you mentioned before, there was no cure. This was really about taking care of people until either they recovered enough to go home or to die. What was unique about the approach that 5B took and those that are, work there? Well, for, for one, it was... It was um, designed and operated by nurses, um, and they were really just making things the way um, they felt it would work best for for patients and and their loved ones. And uh, that involved doing things uh, often a lot differently than on other wards. And as I said, the administration had all kinds of anxiety about this and. As Allison said, uh, you know, the, one of the nurse managers uh, who followed Cliff um, said, w- would say to administration, well, what would you have me do? So just help me, send me people and let me do, let us do our thing. And uh, so, um, so sometimes management would just look the other way or sometimes they would support I'm, I'm sure that just like having Rita Rocket and her uh, brunch bunch there violated all kinds of Jayco rules and hospital rules but you know it was it was necessary and it worked and that's what counted and because were, there wasn't there wasn't much else that could be done yeah and, and there were a lot of people from around the country watching this model um, I think cities all over the place were dumbfounded by what they should do and how they should respond. And, and it really did defy a lot of the common elements that would be in, in a situation like this because the families had abandoned these men. Uh, the men that were there, there was a tremendous amount of fear in society, right? And and so the men that were there were certainly supported by their partners if they had one. But, but what was missing were the mothers and the fathers and the brothers and sisters and relatives from most of these guys, right? Right, right. Yeah, you have this... Uh, I, I first of all, would like to say also that um, from the very beginning, it, it, there were a, um, a lot, maybe mostly gay men, but there were a lot of women um, and trans folk and um, and injection people who use in, injection drugs. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't only men. Mm-hmm. Um but what, what a lot of them did have in common was what you say, that their biological family wasn't there for them. And so they were surrounded by what Amstead Mopin calls their logical family, the family of choice, right? the community. And that included also, you know, I mean, nurses were um, among, um, there were gay men who were nurses, there were doctors who, uh, who were gay men, um, there were people with histories of injection drug use, so it 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 wasn't strict. It wasn't so separate. The 
this, the, it was part of the San Francisco commune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And a lot, a lot of people had been abandoned by their family because they were, because they were gay, but, but, but also, you know, because others, because they were uh, injection drug users or sex workers or so that, uh, the, the stigma was, uh, universal. Right. The, the amount of fear just within the hospital staff had to have been overwhelming because you could feel it out in society for sure. Where do you think the courage came for those nurses and doctors who volunteered to work on this ward and to provide the type of human touch, for example, that was so unique at the time? Well, uh, speaking for myself personally, I, I, I feel like um, very early on, uh, common sense told a lot of us that um, this was not going to be transmitted casually, um, because if it if it was, say if it was airborne or or easy to transmit, even more people, many more people would have been sick. So we 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 did feel we did feel relatively safe. We didn't have a hundred percent. Uh, assurance, but we we felt convinced that casual contact and touch um, wouldn't transmit it. And touch is important, um, yeah. so it's it's part it's it's an important part of the therapeutic relationship. And and especially when people are feeling isolated, and sick, and scared, it, it has to make you wonder a little bit too. I see the logic that you get. I mean, you're a trained healthcare professional, and so you knew enough about how viruses are transmitted and, and based upon what you saw and what you knew about the community and what was happening, you could figure that out. And yet there were other people in the healthcare profession who had similar training who felt compared, compelled to wear these spacesuits. I remember all the images seeing that. And, yeah. and even in law enforcement, working in law enforcement, I'll never forget very early on, it was about 1983 or four, we had a training and they passed out masks and gloves to us and they they told us as cops, if you come in contact with anybody you think is gay, put this mask and gloves on. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, I can't even imagine th- that level of stigma. So where's the disparity in, in how healthcare folks were thinking at the time? Somebody in the film, I think it's David again, who, who's, who says, um, or maybe it's Hank, I forget. But somebody in the film says that for some people – their fear um, was actually a manifestation of their internalized uh, or their, their homophobia. Mm. Um, and it either that could be internalized homophobia or it could be, you know, other, other kind. It, it was the other. They were scared of the other. And this virus was just a way that that manifested itself. And uh, that was harder. That was, that was, it was, in a way, maybe it was easier for people who were already uh, marginalized in some way themselves to say, um, "Let's think about this logically," mm-hmm. and 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 this could be this could be me, this could be or this could be anybody. So I, I think there was an element of that from the beginning. You know, when 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 remember um, there was this crisis with uh, with legionnaire's disease right and there, were, there wasn't nearly the same kind of panic and freak out 
And also, there was a huge, overwhelming government response. And when Legionnaire's disease was first uh, in the news, nobody freaked out about, you know, people who fit that profile or who were at that. There was that outbreak or where that happened to the conference center. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's uh, partly it's partly it's what we bring to the table before we we before we get the information. Got it, Steve. I want to come back to your story for a bit. Um, was New York as much of a safe haven and and sort of a I won't describe it as a free for all, but a, but a safe place for gay men to go and meet and hook up and as San Francisco was in the 70s? Is that your sense uh, of it? I, I'd say in certain areas of New York City it was like that. Okay. Not every place was like that. If you went down to the village, of course you could be out. But mm-hmm. a lot of times when people got on the subway, they'd go back to their neighborhoods and they'd be straight. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I remember distinctly with a friend, this was far, far uh, after uh, when you tested but I remember taking a friend, a very close friend of mine, in fact, it was the guy that I ended up coming out to, down to the old Berkeley Clinic for testing. And it was still at a time when you, you got a blood test and then you had to wait for a couple of weeks and then you went in to, right. to get your results. And I remember it just being horrific in terms of the fear and the waiting and whatnot. Uh, Steve, bring us back to the time when the testing first was made available to men so many people were afraid to even go and get tested. I was one of them. So how did you discover that you were HIV positive? What, did you go oh, and get tested? or No. I originally um, – I, I was sick I think in uh, November of 99. Okay. 98. And um, I had shingles. And I, I, I had known what shingles was okay. at the time because I worked at a hospice. So I, I was kind of familiar with it, but it, it didn't click in my head that I might have HIV. So I had that treated. Then about two months later, I had it again. Um, I still didn't make the connection between me and having HIV. Uh, and then I went back home and I went back to work or whatever. And one morning, my, my legs started getting weak, and it got weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where I, when I woke up one morning, I, I told Guy that I can't walk. So um, we went to the hospital. Um, they were doing all types of tests on me to find out what it was. They thought I had cancer at first, mm-hmm. um, but thank God it wasn't that. So that's why, you know, that's why. I said I'm happy that I found out I had HIV because I could have had cancer, which was a lot, lot worse. Mm-hmm. You know, because at the time there were medications that had come out, uh, ARVs had come out just recently. Um, so that's how I found out I had, I had HIV. Wow. And and so was there a period of time where they did a blood test and you had to wait, or was it just something that they had done in the background and then told you? You know, I. I don't remember, but it must have been very quick because I was in, in, the, in the emergency room. And then that same over period of time, I, I found that I had HIV. So it was very quick. Okay. So, Guy, how did that impact you with all you had seen to date uh, when you heard about Steve's diagnosis? 
Yeah. Um, it, it was, it was a weird, a weird thing. Um, I, I think in a, in a way, Steve and I may both have been in denial because, you know, I, of course I knew shingles should have told us that something was happening. I didn't make the connection either. So in retrospect, I think there may have been some denial for me as well. And then when it was clear that he had HIV, um, I, I didn't know that, I didn't know, again, rationally, that there were treatments available at that point. But I also, I w- was also very angry um, at, at the world, <laughs> mm. at, at fate, because this is, this is completely irrational. But I felt that I had earned some kind of pass or some kind of exemption. You know, already so many of my friends and colleagues had died and I had spent so much time working in HIV that I felt like some cosmic justice should have prevented this from happening to Steve. And of course it doesn't work that way. Right. Well, and and I think, of course we know now that the incubation period for the virus is so long that... You, it would be hard to go back and pinpoint. Okay, well, I know when it happened, or you know, I, I can I can remember the day of. I mean, it's it's decades. People were involved in activities they had no idea would lead to um, an infection like this back in yeah, the day. Right. Right. Well, you know, there were so many amazing stories that were interwoven into this, you know, historical look at Ward Five B, and, and of course, that's the part of the film I enjoyed the most was really those human stories. And the one clearly that's just so touching is, and unique, uh, Guy, is that Steve became one of your patients, one of the people that you were taking care of in that ward. Talk about that experience. Um, well, I, I took care of Steve when he came home. Um, and I worked on the ward while Steve was hospitalized there. But I didn't take care of him as his nurse in the hospital because that that is generally not done. You know, you, you, if you're somebody's family member or spouse or you, you, you can work there, but you are not assigned as the nurse or provider for your, for your loved one, Mm -hmm. because it makes, it's just, it's just some, not something that we do. Right. It's, it would have been too hard at that time as well. Okay. So, Steve, let me go back to you then on, with this question. So what brought what, – what ended up bringing you into 5B? Oh, because I, I – I, well, they found out – they found a mass on my uh, spinal cord. Okay. That turned out to be TB. Um, that – the fact I couldn't walk anymore and the fact I had HIV, that's, that's why I went there. Got it. And how long after you had um, tested positive, if you will, or it was discovered that you were positive did that happen? Did, did what happen? Did, did, were you admitted? Did they found that that mass? Oh, that was that was immediately. I think was it immediately. Yeah, because yeah. So the, the reason the reason Steve went to the hospital the first time was because he couldn't walk. I see. And that's that's when they they scanned him and found this lesion on his spinal cord that later turned. They first thought was ca- was cancer, but later it turned out to be tuberculosis, spinal tuberculosis, which is not uncommon in people with HIV. It's an opportunistic uh, condition that can happen, mm-hmm. um, and so he had to, 
they removed it from his spine. So he spent quite a bit of time in the hospital because they, they also were thinking if it's cancer, then he may need to have chemotherapy. So he, he was in the hospital for a bit that time. Then once it turned out to be TB and, uh, and HIV, he was treated for the, the TB um, and then for HIV. And then he got this immune reconstitution syndrome where the immune system kind of gets stronger, wakes up and starts fighting and that causes inflammation. And in his case, it, um, it caused uh, swelling in his brain because that's where the TB had been in the, in, the, in, the, in the central nervous system. And once you have inflammation in your brain, then, you know, that's, so that's, then, he, then he was readmitted and, and ultimately went into a coma. Mm. Well, I, again, I don't want to give too much of the film away, but I don't think we'd be giving too much away because obviously you're here to talk about it, Steve. <laughs> um, and, and I have to tell you when I you know, was watching the story progress and, and hearing you talk about how the virus was, you know, impacting you, it, it, I thought, oh no, well, here's another, here's another statistic. And then it comes back to you. Um, and it, it didn't even occur to me that when they were talking about the survivors, that that was you. And when your name oh. flashed up on that screen, I got to tell you that the tears just poured from my eyes. <laughs> um, it was, it was just amazing. So, uh, I, I appreciate that miracle for sure. Also do I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Steve, as a patient, then guys talked about the unique care from a patient's perspective and you're enough familiar enough with healthcare. What for you was most significant in the way that the staff was caring for people in that ward that you think made a difference? I, I I really like to think that it was mostly compassion. I, I really got a feel for the compassion that these people, um, I, I, they actually did the work that needed to be done. And I'm so grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I'm sure that I wouldn't be here if, if, uh, if I wasn't, if I was in another city. Mm. So it's, it is the power of that human touch and compassion that can make all the difference. Yeah. Going yeah. on the medicine. It's empathy. <laughs> okay. Now that was that was like something that I really, really felt. Um from from all the people that worked at Ward eighty six Ward uh, at Ward five five A. Um just the, the 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 feeling for other people. Um it, it just it's just something about it. It makes you feel like like you're in the hospital, you're sick. But these people know that you're sick and they're trying to make you better. And it made all the difference. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, I think one of the other dramatic moments came and this and it really became, I think, a little bit of an obstacle, right, Guy? When one of your colleagues suffered a needle stick and then tested positive. Yeah, that was, um, I mean, I, that happened before I was there. But um, I knew about it. I knew the story of, of the nurse at General who got infected and um, Nurse Jane Doe. Right. And so we, we all had moments where, you know, we were at risk, either in our personal lives or while doing nursing. That ward also, that was... Um, 
it, it, there is a, uh, rightfully a lot of emphasis on the human touch, um, but it also, at the same time, it was a, a very busy acute care ward. It wasn't just nurses going around touching people. It was in most, most of these patients in any other circumstance would have been in an ICU. They had chest tubes. They, had, they were very complex, very, very sick patients. And it was very busy. You had a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason that they weren't in the ICU was because the ICU was full. And, and because they had HIV and because we could do what we could do. So these, these nurses there were highly skilled. And uh, often it was understaffed um, despite everybody's best efforts. And often you had a lot to do. So it, the, the, that a nurse stuck herself with a needle, um, we all knew that could happen to any of us and did happen to many of us. So that was... Um, that was intense. Yeah. And and as I think is portrayed and told pretty well in the film, uh, there was a faction of people who didn't support the work that you were doing and the way that you were doing it that perhaps exploited that exposure to either demonize it or to try to shut down the work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and an element of that is always there when you try to do something. Sometimes um, people are, have access to services that they wouldn't have access to if they didn't have HIV, mm-hmm. and and that 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 is that can be hard. You know, I I, I was working in the tenderloin for many many years, and um, sometimes people go to get access to housing or to meals if they had HIV, and if they didn't have HIV, they couldn't. And um, if you're homeless and sick and um, addicted to drugs or severely mentally ill. And, and the only, you, you, it, it's, it might be understandable that you see the only thing that stands, that is between you and the, the person who does get all these services is the fact that that person has HIV, then, then HIV is not such a bad thing anymore. Right. So, so that, as, as awful as that is, that is real. Um, the HIV is one of the things that that happens in in, in communities. Um, communities get disproportionately affected by things that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's social and cultural things that happened around yeah, um, epidemics like this, yeah, right? Stigma is one of those cultural things that happens. Um, and then there's also a level of protection and uh, u- unique protections for people that, you know, disproportionately support some and take away from others. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm curious, you know, this, this was obviously such a dark time, a scary time in your lives. What was it like going back and putting this documentary together and being reunited with people, but also really revisiting the experience that you had and telling the story? Um, it was hard. At first, we didn't even want to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, after we spoke with Dan Krauss, the director of the film, um, he kind of put us at ease, and his film crew was fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spent, like, how long, a day and a half filming us? Yeah, and then and then 
in the hospital and yeah, the various yeah. other. Yeah, and the, the researchers were phenomenal too. They they did a lot of the prep work, got a lot of of the you know our old pictures and old material together, and uh, did a lot of talking so that when when Dan and the crew actually were on site for the for the interviews, they they knew a lot of stuff. They knew the context and. Uh, yeah, they they were in, they were truly interested. They weren't. It felt like they didn't have a, a script in mind that we that they, they would just follow. Mm-hmm. They they let it grow. They let it grow. They were truly interested, and we we were afraid that it would be maybe um, the kind of Hollywood tearjerker has already been made a number of times, right? And right. and 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 we didn't want that. And we didn't want it to be just about the past. We had actually kind of decided um, uh, between each, uh, ourselves that um, we, we weren't going to cry and we weren't going to talk only about the past. And <laughs> of course, once we were sitting down with them, we did start crying. <laughs> right. I mean, how could you not? How could we you not? We did talk about the past, but then the film ended up, you know, it, it, yes, it's, it's, it is a story about that time, but it's, it's, clearly, it's clearly also about now. It, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And and the story of survivors is an important one because people didn't expect to survive. And, yeah. And that brings about an entirely different mindset, I would imagine. And it it had to have dr- dramatically impacted you individually, Steve, and you two together, Guy, in a way that very few people can understand. Yeah. What, you what, know, I... Go ahead. I'm just going to say it, it's still affecting me. I worked in, in um, Tanzania and South Africa for what was it? Ten years. Ten years. Uh, back and forth because uh, I went. I I actually had the disease and I wanted to help other people. Wow. Um, when you were reuniting with everybody, um, and I don't know how much contact you actually had with them, but did you learn anything new that you didn't realize before about the story? I, I I I was finally able to see the the large network of people that were around. Mm. I mean, everybody from Rita Rocket to to the uh, janitors. They, I mean, it was it was an amazing family to be around. And and you didn't really have a sense of the vast number of people that were involved until now. No, I didn't. I had no idea. Wow. I mean, I know it was large, but I didn't know that it was that big. Guy, did you discover anything new that you didn't know before? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I did, it, 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 so Steve Steve was in a coma for a lot of the time that he was at Jack, at, at the ward. Um, so 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 it's it's understandable that he didn't know. Uh, you know, this, there were there were people involved in his care that he never saw while conscious, and and others that he just couldn't remember because he was so sick. So for him, it's understandable. But for me, <laughs> I had kind of the same experience in, in working on this film. I met people that I had heard about, but had never actually met, who had been there before I was there or after. And, um, and of course, Patience, the, 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 the whole story that's in there about Shane. Right. Um, he, he died before I came, came to the ward, but his story is, is so typical for what happened to so many of our patients. Um, so in a, in a way I felt like I knew these people already, like even the ones that I, you know, I, I knew a number of people that are in the film. Um, 
you know, before we started making the film, of course, um, like Dion Jones and Donald Abrams is in the film and Paul Volberding, but, but, um, and I had worked with David Dan, but a lot of people I had never met before, but when I did meet them, it felt like we were family. Mm, I bet. I bet. Like we knew each other, like we, 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 in a way, like we had always known each other and like, it felt like a reunion, even though we had never actually physically met before. And, uh, and these people are still passionate. Um, and they also feel like there's still a lot more work to do. So that was, um, that was uh, also a very unifying experience. Sure. Sure. Uh, Guy and Steve, what do you want okay. people to see from your own perspectives when people watch this? What do you want them to see and learn? Well, the, the, for me, there are a number of things that I, that I would hope that people would take away from this. And one of them is that everybody can do something. And that's true for everybody. That's true for all of us. We can all do something. And uh, often the best thing is not to run away, to move closer. Um, you know what to do. Um, and, or you figure it out together. And often it is simpler than you, than you had thought. And small things often are more important than you thought. I, I, I hope that people, um, that this film re reminds people that they can do something. And they don't all have to become nurses, although that would be helpful if a lot of people did. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a shortage. <laughs> we, need a, we need a lot. And uh, I don't know if, if people know that uh, eight out of ten um, prevention and care services for HIV worldwide are delivered by nurses. Nurses mm. deliver 80% of prevention and care for HIV. Um, and that's true for, for actually healthcare in general. Nurses are uh, the most important healthcare providers. Um, and that's from kind of cradle to grave, from midwifery to hospice and everything in between. So, um, Okay, but that was a sidetrack. Let me get back to the question. Uh, I would also want people to take away from the film, and I think the audiences that we've spoken with do take this away from the film, from seeing the film, is that a, a, a lot has changed and a lot ha hasn't changed. Take the travel ban. Um, in the film, you see Reagan announce the travel ban against people with HIV. And what do we have today? We have travel bans, we have ICE, we have children in detention because their parents are from the wrong country. Um, so we, this, this is not over. This fight against stigma um, and discrimination is not over. Mm -hmm. We have even, we even have uh, recently, uh, there, there was an effort to allow uh, nurses and other healthcare providers to deny care based on their on the healthcare providers' um, religious preferences. Right. Uh, that we can't let that happen. We can't go backwards. Um, as I said in the film, you know, if 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 you're afraid, and uh, you know, in nursing you're going to take care you're going to take care of people, and that involves you know, there's bodily fluids. If that's not something that you can handle, then accounting might be a better option, as I said in the film, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's really true. But, but beyond that, you know, whether you're a nurse or not, you're a human being, and you, you know what to do. If a, if a, if a child walks up to you right now and, and is thirsty, you're going to give that child a glass of water. 
you're not going to ask, you know, what's your last name, who are your parents, uh, what is their religion. You're certainly not going to put them in a cage. You're going to give them a glass of water. We know what to do. And, and you, you do it. Great you know point. it in your gut. You know, you know it in your bones. Good point. Good point. Uh, Steve, how about you? What do you want people to learn and what do you want them to see in these stories? The main thing I want them to take away from this is that when things are bad in your life for whatever reason, that there's always somebody around that can help you. Um, and this has been, uh, I think the, the nurses at, at five, five A, five, which was, which was five B are the perfect example of that. Um, because there, there was really not much they could do at the time, but to take care of people. And you saw what, what good came out, um, from from them actually caring for people. Yeah, very good. So, Steve, you're in school. What are you studying yes. now? Psychology. Psychology. And what's what's in the future with you in psychology? Well, I'd like to get my PhD, but it's going to take a while. So, uh, you know, my mother is a psychologist in New York. Okay. She was a nurse. <laughs> she was uh, a nurse. Okay. Okay. So I've been hearing all this all my life, and uh, I actually typed her her dissertation for her. Okay, no plagiarism. No plagiarism. No, 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 sure. That's what I tell my students. Uh, and Guy, you're still working in the field. Uh, what's What are you doing and what's on tap for you? I'm actually, right now, um, I've been suspended from my job oh. at that very hospital. Um, and it's, it's, it's ironic, I feel. Um, it's I, I, it's not funny, um, and I'm I'm upset about it. Um, but it is uh, it's ironic in the sense that you know some things have changed and some things don't change. And uh, I I feel passionate about things and I speak out about them, and that's not always appreciated. So when when the hospital has decided to rename itself. Uh, after Zuckerberg, um, whose company has engaged in very unethical activities, Sasha was in the film, and I felt that we needed to speak out about it. And um, and when I keep uh, statistics for our clinic about mortality, and I see that um, that health outcomes for our patients at our clinic um, and and citywide are much worse for people of color than for others. I feel the need to speak out when I see that homeless people are stigmatized. Um, when I see that my colleagues, um, nurses, social workers, and other staff that are people of color are not um, retained at the same, uh, they tend to leave. Whereas people of my color, um, white folks tend to retire. I feel the need to speak out about these things. And then, that uh, I know that that's difficult, but under previous management, it was always welcomed as a contribution, because it's all all of all of what we have done on five A five B, and at, at my current place, Ward eighty six, has always been you know you you recognize a problem and then you try to solve it, and you you work together, and that can be rough, but you you figure it out, and. Um, Anyway, so I don't know what the future holds for me. I uh, I want to go back to work as soon as possible. Yeah, but it 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 it, it may not happen. Um, but there's always something to do. 
Well, you're a true activist, and sometimes being an activist means rubbing others the wrong way to get what is right yeah. done. So I applaud you for that, and I applaud you for your courage, for sure. Thank you. Well, Guy and Steve, it, it's been just a pleasure uh, talking with you, and, and thank you so much for, gosh, for the courage back in the day, for the courage today and sharing your stories. But uh, most of all, I'm just delighted and happy that you're together because clearly you love each other and you've been through so much. And uh, what you're doing with this film and the work you're going to be doing moving forward is going to be part of making sure people never forget what happened back in the day. Hopefully. Thank you. And yeah, I hope they will be inspired to, to do something themselves. And thank you for, for, for your show and for the work that you're yeah, doing. It's very really important. Glad to be here. The film is called 5B and it's available on streaming services everywhere. You can learn more at 5bfilm.org. Well, that wraps up our hour and our 10th year here on the air at Radio 91. I'd like to thank Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer, who first got me hooked on radio 10 years ago, and to Robin Pressman for giving my pilot show a chance. And a special thanks to Sean Knight and Darren Lachelle, who both support our show today. A special shout out and thanks to our news partners at LGBTQ Nation, The Advocate Magazine, and The Bay Area Reporter. I'll be back next Sunday with part three of our Outbeat Extra celebrates the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with Eric Marcus and Making Gay History. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. On air, online, or on the go, we are Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor, and K215CQ Santa Rosa. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.